Welcome to Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host Julian Gill. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, a author who I've had the pleasure of hanging out with in New York City and being taken around to some really interesting places. Author of Kisses Tome on Destroyer. Way back when, that must seem like a lifetime ago, but now James Campion has published uh, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude, a song that's not just dedicated to a single song, but um, to about, I guess, the Beatles in 1968 and a whole plethora of elements that come together. No pun intended there. Um, <laughs> James Campion, good to have you back on the show talking about yet another book. Yes, Julian. Uh, this is the first time I'm on this particular podcast, but this is not my, our first rodeo. Uh, you were one of the first people to interview me for Shout It Out Loud way back in, I guess, October of 2015. Is that right? Crazy. I can't um, keep track of the time. No, but thank you. And I, and I, I just told you off the air, and I want to say real quickly, uh, you know, publicly to you, because I've already written a review, wonderful job on the Aerosmith book. It's excellent. Everyone should own it. And it's I, I still go to it now to, to read different sections. It's masterful work. I personally love the... Um, I love the the aspect of research when I do books. People always ask me, what do you like best about writing books about music? And I always say the interviews and the research. And I, I'm saying this without any equivocation. You are one of my heroes when it comes to research, period. And that book is a testament to that. So congrats from me to you on that. Well, thank you very much. Number one, that's very high praise coming from you who write in a completely different style to me and someone who I consider to be a true writer, not <laughs> only a researcher and someone who delves into the history of these bands. You are a writer, and that's a completely different art form to the uh, kind of paint I throw on walls. So thank you very much for those <laughs> kind words. Let's get into Sad Song. Um, I want to start with the impact of Paul McCartney on The Late Late Show with James Corden, because that evokes a lot of memories, emotional and otherwise, to myself. And let me just tell you a little bit about my background. My mother was born in Liverpool in 1943. She was a teenager living in Wallasey in the ballrooms that the Beatles were playing wow. prior to Hamburg and through 62. Um, she did not see the Beatles because of social position meant that that was frowned upon. Um, so mm. both she and my father were also courting. He's not from Liverpool. Um, during the, the ascendancy of the Beatles, 62 to 66, before he went to Oxford and she followed him there as a nurse. So Liverpool is close to my heart. I spent many New Year's holidays in the late 80s with my sister there. She was also born in Liverpool and attended Liverpool University. So the Penny Lanes, the pubs, the places where the Beatles played, the clubs, I've been to. So I have a strong emotional attachment. So the late show with James Corden really resonated with me seeing Macca take James through the city to many of these landmarks, which I know and mean something to me personally. But how was that an inspiration for you? It was right off the bat. I, I, I would like to preface the answer by telling you I am also a 
descendant of Liverpudlians. I found out in the last six, seven years of my life, you know, my father died in 2019, but he wasn't much of a, a talker and didn't talk about the past that much. But it turns out I always thought I was Irish Italian, but the Campions are from Liverpool and married four generations of Irish women from across the pond there. And it turns out that's exactly what happened to Lennon and McCartney uh, and the reverse for Paul. And it's just really weird all these years loving the Beatles, I have never, I'm embarrassed to say, never been to Liverpool. I did do a Beatles London tour years ago. I want to do it just as a familial thing to get back to Liverpool or get to Liverpool. But I just found out in the last, you know, within the last 10 years that I also have those roots. Um, when I saw the Cardin thing, it was my friend Peter Blazovic, who's in the book, sent it to me. He said, you have to see this. And I watched it at lunchtime at work the headphones on. And I had to hold back tears watching it. It was just really well done. I know a lot of people, when I bring that up, everybody, are a lot of interviewers are not big fans of Corden for whatever reason. I don't watch the show, but I thought that was a brilliant idea. You know, car karaoke, get in a car with a famous person. He's done it with, I think, Lady Gaga and Elton John, other people. But he gets in there with Paul and Paul's taking him, as you said, all around Liverpool to his childhood home and talking about, you know, writing She Loves You and, and his dad's just suggesting uh, that they, they sing Yes, Yes, Yes instead of Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it's just magnificent. And, you know, there's one moment that really starts to break you in the interview in which Corden's singing Let It Be with him. So imagine sitting in a car, driving around Liverpool with Paul McCartney singing Let It Be and they're singing it and Corden's doing a great job harmonizing with him and you could tell Paul's digging it. And then all of a sudden Corden starts to cry. He's like, I, I didn't see that coming. I, and he tells a story about his father, his grandfather loving the Beatles. And he said, oh, man, if he could only be here now. And very quietly, without any kind of provocation, Paul says, oh, he's here. And that gave me an insight into Paul that I never had in all my years reading the Beatle books and biographies and the, the documentaries. That one singular moment. Then they end the thing, which I write about in the book. And thanks for bringing it up, Julian, in which... They stop at a pub in Liverpool and they just play. They, they, they surprise everybody. And there's maybe like 20 people in there at the beginning. And then at the end, everybody's rushing in and they're playing uh, Hey Jude and Corden singing it and everyone's singing it. And in the midst of this crowd, just a quick shot. And it's funny how I remember it more vividly, but I just watched it again recently. And it's just a real three second shot of this young woman weeping. Like tears of true joy and emotion, just real. And I thought to myself immediately, what what that what is that woman crying for? It's such a great moment. She's watching Paul in a pub. Is this a song that her father taught her and her father passed? Is this a song that she learned when she was six years old? And I look over to my wife, who's not a crier for something like this and not a huge Beatle fan, tearing up. She got it. And so from that moment forward, Julian, I, that stuck in my head. And I remembered something also vividly, and I read about it in the book. In 1989, I saw Paul play at Madison Square Garden during the... Um, Flowers in the Dirt tour. It was the first time Paul had ever done a, a swath of Beatles songs. And he does Hey Jude. And I was sitting on the side of the stage, so I'm looking out at the crowd. So the full volume of the crowd is hitting me. Because I just saw him in June in Syracuse, same large crowd, but I didn't feel the same weight of it. But my memory is that it just it hit me in the face. And I'd never, and at that moment I realized, oh my goodness, I'm in a room even though a very large room in New York City, with a Beatle. The Beatles came alive on stage for me during that. And I had this sense memory of singing the Nanas when I was five years old to help me fall asleep because I would have been five in 68. So when it was on the radio and I must have heard it, didn't know anything about the Beatles, didn't hear the whole song, didn't know anything about anything. But that na, 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 I sang it over and over to help me fall asleep. And I remembered it from hearing it in, in the Madison Square Garden. And the final thing is, 
paying it forward is I remembered it watching the Corden piece. And I tr- and that's why I subtitled the book The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude because it does continue to pay forward over the years for me personally. And when I see everyone singing it in large crowds all over the world, then I started looking at these videos of them playing at the Kremlin and playing at the G8 Summit and playing at the White House. Everybody just loses their mind singing that and how much he's touched people with it. So I said, Julian, I got to get to the bottom of this, man. I got to figure out why songs touch us, not just this song, but other ones. But I use this as a thread. And that was really the story of how James Corden and Paul McCartney singing in a car tooling around Liverpool inspired my book. And the emotional currency is not just a phrase of self-importance here. I think it's a critical description of what this song embodies. And you've perfectly summarized a lot of those emotional responses. When I saw the James Corden uh, broadcast, um, there were tears. And when I saw your title, Emotional Currency, I'm like, yeah. That, that's what we're talking about. That Thank That you. is the impact that an artist or a song has on our human nature, where for no reason we could be sitting there smiling, reveling in the moment. And then there's a tear. A tear of joy emerges. And whether it's, as you say, remembering a childhood echo where you used the lullaby section, as I like to kind of call it. I mean, it's a world healing lullaby in a certain way, but it also transcends that. And we'll talk about transcendental uh, (laughs) meditation and some of those elements. But it is a very healing song in so many ways. Uh, How do you see these two symbiotic but separate parts of Hey Jude? You have a song that is in some ways based upon. And I I don't know how much I agree with the uh, construct that the Gregorian chant that Paul may have encountered as a choir boy in Liverpool, um, just the seven notes. They're certainly there. They're certainly the same. Um, Being, you know, one part of the song and then the na-na section being completely separate. How do you appraise that? Well, there's a few things to unpack there, and they're all really great. Um, getting specifically to the John Ireland um, liturgical piece called the Te Deum that was brought up to me by one of the uh, professors, in fact, a great Beatle writer, Walter Everett, who's written several books on uh, – he's a musicologist also. And he had gone to school with this uh, professor, John Devers, and Devers teaches angelical and, and leads angelical choirs and, and studies that stuff. And they were giving the percentages of what it could be, and when they played it for me – And this young woman, Mary Nixon, was singing it and said, oh, my goodness, I think I found the origins or the foundation of Hey Jude or at least something that and you can't escape it. It's there. Because that solemn low note that's played in there is classic religious sort of singing and how Paul would have sung that into the angelical choir at eight years old in 1950. And and all the professors says, especially Professor Devers, he would have at least sung that he would have heard it because it's the kind of thing it's easy to play it's easy to sing for boys i don't i agree with you i don't i never th- i don't think it's a my sweet lord kind of thing where even george harrison after that fact said that's what i was going for yeah. i recently heard a a, a a podcast in which uh, rob sheffield who contributed to the book from rolling stone magazine and wrote a wonderful book called dreaming the beatles that's how it got me to rob he mentions about how you know uh it's a subconscious way of taking music you hear. In other words, when Paul helped John with the melody to In My Life, he was 
he he said I specifically went for a Smokey Robinson thing. And if you listen to a couple of Smokey Robinson and the Miracle songs, you hear the underpinnings of In My Life. Right. Did they go, let's rewrite a, a Miracle song? Let's rip off Smokey Robinson? No, no, no. They loved and adored him. They respected him. And just like, uh, you know, ELO or, or, or Crosby, Stills, and Nash or God, I, I, Elton John, Billy Joel, when he wrote... Um, I've got a, you've got a way about, he's like, oh my God, that's, that's maybe I'm amazed. I, I, I finished it and I'm like, I totally ripped off maybe I'm amazed, but did he do it consciously? No, it's out there. They build on it. They've been doing it for hundreds of years in music, but Paul is so tapped into music. I talk about it all the time. Someone said in my book, when Paul uses take a sad song as a metaphor for sadness and for, for, you know, loss and other things, he's really getting serious because song Music means everything to Paul McCartney, to his family, to his background, to everything. And, you know, for me, I think that all those little origins, you had to put it in the book. You had to study it if you're going to go ahead and write it. I don't completely agree with the with the connection, but it's hard to it's hard to refute that it's not at least there as a foundation. No, yeah. it's definitely part of his DNA, as are so many of his elements of uh, some of the music that's creeped into the Beatles catalog you know, coming from jazz or Fred Astaire, show tunes from the 20s, all of his human experience is yes. represented and it manifests itself in many different ways. So I think those seven notes definitely connect back to that youth, but definitely not overtly. It wasn't a deliberate decision. No, no. Any more so, you, you say that you want to write a song in a certain style and you do that style. You mentioned My Sweet Lord. Very, very obviously what you, what uh, was going for on that song. But I think this is a whole element of calming because you go into a lot of detail about Paul McCartney's youth, the loss of his mother, um, you know, the death you know, death affecting his life and something that connected him and John so closely. And obviously John's mother died when he was much older and at a phase of his life. He was 17 years old when, right. when his mom dies mm -hmm. and much less equipped in some ways to deal with that loss and grieving than Paul was to deal at a much earlier age because it's more of a fairy tale and we're more we're not as emotionally mature at that age as John was at his age of loss. How, how do you think these elements tie together? Because it almost seems to me that Paul is writing to the world, to Julian, to John, and to himself. And you explore yes. each one of these kind mm -hmm. of paths within the book. Yeah, thank you. You obviously read it and, and, and got a lot out of it, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. Um, I will say as an addendum of what we were just talking about, I, I describe Hey Jude as a secular gospel song. It has, it has religious elements in the angelical choir, but also in the double amen cadence or the plagal cadence at the end, the nanas, those three chords, are used in a lot of gospel songs. There's a lot of gospel phrasing. When he's screaming at the end and they're going on and on, it reminds me of the old soul stirrers or there's people who are testifying that great African-American Southern tradition that rock and roll grew out of. You know, you don't have Chuck Berry, you don't have Fats Domino, you don't have Elvis Presley, you certainly don't have the Beatles without the foundation of that. And that's why I, in the book, I discovered that Paul, being a songsmith of epic proportions, 
would go and mine all these things to to make what I feel is his greatest masterpiece and my favorite Beatles song. And I think they're best Beatles, the best Beatles song because it has, I mean, everybody's got, it's all subjective, right? But it has, it coalesces with all these things that Beatles do well, all the kind of music they do well, even the classical music. Cause I had musicologists tell me there, there are hints of Mozart and styles that Mozart used. And of course, a country Western flavor. And the Beatles were into that in 1968. And of course the soul aspect of it, cause the Beatles adored the, the, the soul uh, singers, especially the female soul singers. So I think that's all there's a thread in there. But getting to your question about Paul and John, that was a big light bulb for me. I mean, I always knew that was part of the Beatles story. But I think that if, if there's one thing that I took from two things that I took from studying Paul's life for a year and writing about it and interviewing his biographers and going through all the material is that the death of both Paul and John's mother, Paul at 14, John at 17, and their connection there, they both say, is immense. And they wrote songs. Paul's first song is I Lost My Little Girl. And he says, I'm looking back, and how could that not be? Uh, John, the same thing. Uh, his first song, he said, I thought about my my mom. And then, you know, uh, obviously, you know, Paul putting uh, Mary and Let It Be, and, and John writing a song called Julia. and But also the songs like She Loves You, or Help, I Need Somebody, Not Just Anybody, or Here, There, and Everywhere, songs about longing. Uh, you know, John's If I Fall in Love With You, Will You Promise to Be True? You know, all these longings for these women because they had a hole in their heart for this for this maternal figure. And I'm not saying it's edible in any way. I'm not saying they're replacing, although John did call Yoko, um, you know, mom, uh, mother for his whole life. And in the song, Julia, he sings Ocean Child, which in that's Ocean Child, Japanese is Yoko Ono. So John understood that connection, Paul less so, but they were absolutely connected by the death of their mothers. And I think their best and most effective love songs of yearning and looking for that right woman, as John said, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, is that woman coming down uh, that I missed that Yoko fulfills. And that the fact that they found, here's the second part, Julian, they found these two women in their lives, Linda for, for, for Paul in late 67, same with John in 66 into 67, but they both consummated these relationships in 1968, weeks before Paul writes, if you've, you have found her, now go and get her. You know, you were meant to go and find this woman that John said, this song's about me and Yoko. And Paul finds Linda, John finds Yoko, and then in less than a year, they will both marry these women within five days of each other. It's just way too deep. I don't think I'm grasping for straws here. And I think Hey Jude is that connection. And of course, you mentioned it. Paul drives out to, to, to comfort Julian, John's son, and, and his wife, Cynthia, who he's known since he was a teenager, um, because he loves John. And he, he understands, he has an empathetic feel that he got from his mother, who was a nurse and a very caring woman. So it's all in there. And I, I really feel like the layers opened up for me when I was working on this book. Yeah, I, I think you, you explain the difference between John and Paul, that they're very similar emotionally, but how they process those emotions are vastly different. Right. And that, that, often gets Paul labeled with the granny music shit, you know, that he has a more, a softer, more emotional response to right. what he's experiencing in his uh, life. John Lennon was cerebral. He learned, he, he worked at that side of things because he was always seen as the rougher lad from Liverpool 
mm-hmm. you know, almost from the wrong side of the tracks where Paul McCartney's family was kind of because of Mary's nursing was more middle class for the times and John wasn't. So you have that contrast, but they're both traveling on the same train in the same direction, but they're on different platforms when they get there. I think you raise a very incre- uh, you know, important point about mid 1968. Mid 1968 is a mess in the world and you go into some of the quite a lot of the detail to set the scene of what's going on in the worldview. They've just come back from Rishikesh, uh, Rishikesh, pardon me, um, and the transcendental meditation. So what is meditation about? It's about awareness. This is yes. a very self-aware song. Yes, and, and uh, one of the things that Paul took back from the Maharishi, I think the, the, the misconception is that Paul thought it was a joke. Uh, he came back and said, you know, uh, at the time, in real time, uh, this was, you know, was a mistake. We thought he was something more than he was, and maybe they did. But Paul still does the mantra that he learned from the Maharishi. He still meditates to this day. Obviously, has a lot of Indian precepts. He's a vegetarian, and uh, you know, and, and, and cares about the environment. Uh, and also, <laughs> I, I I discovered this in one of his biographies. The the, um, the Maharishi said over and over again to all of his students, and the Beatles were there. The heart goes to a warmer place. The heart will go to a warmer place. And I think that's where Paul always felt comfortable. You mentioned about John and Paul and the yin and the yang. It's definitely there. John's best love songs are like, don't let me down or if I fell, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. I, I'm going to give of myself because John was just getting to know his mom when she died. Paul was nursed by his mom, helped by his mom, you know, berated by his mom. You say the right things. You do the right things. He felt that love even though he had less time with her. Julia couldn't handle him and, and, and sent him off to his Aunt Mimi. And then the big difference, Julian, is the fathers. We're not even touching upon that. Paul's dad was a sweet man, also a musician, had the Jimmy Mack jazz band and played piano to ease his, his, his grief after his wife died. And Paul's watching this. And he's saying, look at my dad. It's music saving him. And he starts playing piano himself. And his father says something very smart to him. He says, son, if you learn to play an instrument, you'll always be invited to the party. And what does Paul do as I write in the book? Hey, he becomes the party in the 1960s. John, his father leaves him when he's the same age as John leaves Julian to go with Yoko at five, six years old. So he doesn't have that father figure at all. He doesn't even have his mother, who's more of a sister character to him. And so his approach to the world and his songwriting, his art, because he's all about the art, and so is Paul, is is wariness, cerebral, because if I give my heart, I'm going to get hurt. If I use my mind, I won't get, because it was John who lashed out against the Maharishi. This guy's phony, sexy Sadie. He tried to screw us. He was, Paul's like, well, he just wasn't the guy we thought he was. And so, and Paul was always open. Hey, Jude says, be vulnerable. Adam Duritz, my friend and podcast part, partner and singer for Counting Crows and their main songwriter who, who writes amazingly emotional songs said, you know, Paul is not singing about something you give like most love songs. He's not singing about something you get like most love songs. He's saying you have to be open for all of it. Be vulnerable. And how hard is it for it to be a 26-year-old rock star and be vulnerable? We, we want to be tough. We want to be macho. We want to tell the world how many women we have and how much money we have. You know, how great we are as musicians, how handsome we are, and how many magazine covers are on the cover of. You know, no, Paul's saying strip that down. And I think he's telling his bandmates. And he's telling the world, as you mentioned, in 1968, I write about in the book, you know, we need to stop thinking about them and us, this and that. 
ego, which is what the Maharishi taught against, you know, strip that ego, like the Buddhist teachings, you know. And so it's all in Hey Jude. And a lot of people I know are listening to this right now and go, these are two music nuts. And here's a guy who spent a year with this book. He is way overanalyzing this song. But I, I, I question myself too. I'm a skeptic at first. To be a writer, a really good journalist, you have to be like, are we on the right track? And I dove deeper and I interviewed so many people for the book and they kept coming back going, no question their mother's dying was a huge part of it. No question they're doing this. And Paul's saying the bridge of yesterday where he sings, why she, she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say, that's about my mom. This is him in his 40s looking back. So I don't think I'm reaching for straws here. I think it's all in the, this song. And it was very important, important to Paul. So important that they, they recorded it in a new studio on eight tracks and that they, they did seven minutes of the na-na's. And everybody said they were crazy, except for John, who stood up and said, no, we're the Beatles. We could do anything. And they used that arrogance and power to make this, I think, their greatest work. You raise a, a very good key point there about eight track at Trident. Was it, it was Trident Studios. Yes. Um, just think of that. Just stop. Everyone who's listening to this, stop and think about this. This is the first Beatles recording using pure A-track. They've done Revolver, Magical Mystery Tour, Sgt. Peppers on two and four track machines with bounce downs <laughs> to get the additional tracks. But in bounce downs, you do lose definition and clarity. They, this is their first experimentation with anything that starts approaching what we consider modern recording techniques. That is probably more incredible than anything else because yes. it, it's easy to think of this. I've called it a lullaby. We've called it a mm -hmm. kind of a healing, um, you, you know, the Southern music that wouldn't bespeak necessarily requiring eight tracks to construct, but it uses all of those tracks effectively. It does. Um, and, and that is what I think helps bring out a lot of the ingredients because eight tracks at that time are a lot of landscape to play with. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, do you hear that craziness going on? That's my kitten playing with a ball rolling around. It. Can you hear that? I background? thought it was a dog, but you know, I'm a cat person. So <laughs> rock on, on cat. It's, it's this thing. <laughs> I'm taking it away from her. That, that's, I'm taking it away from him. That's it. That's my new kitten, uh, Vonnegut. Named him after Kurt Vonnegut. And he's interrupting my interview with, uh, you know, this is what happens when you name a cat after I, I, I'm sorry, you've got that the wrong way. You, you're interrupting the cat's being. <laughs> Don't forget it. I'm sorry. I just took this away from you. You're being, you're interrupting my interview. This is going to be the best part for anybody. If you're listening to this, this is what I did. I just showed Julian the cat toy. Um, yes, back to the eight tracks. Can I also say, Julian, that was really important, is that the Beatles were did something like Sgt. Pepper's on four tracks, which is insane. But as we know, they bounced tracks. So they were able to get four, you know, 14 tracks out of some songs by just, you know, but they didn't have to do with this, with this, with this song, as you mentioned. But the key element of this, and I, and I, and I write about the, re the rehearsals recording and then later on the, um, the, uh, the mastering of it, how much trouble they had going between Abbey Road Studios and Trident and back to Abbey Road. They almost, they almost lost, which was what the first take of Hey Jude, they did four takes. In the studio, the first one they did is the one you hear on the record today. And there's so many great stories around that. But they were able to fit a seven minute plus, seven minute and 11 se seconds to be exact, song on the A side of a 45. Now, this is key why? Because of the grooves and the quality of the sound. And the Beatles fans and the Beatles themselves were used to high quality. And Fast forward to 1972, I know there's a new documentary coming out on, um, on uh, 
American Pie. And actually, Don McLean's daughter, Jackie McLean, is a great singer, songwriter, and own right is, is one of the voices in my book. That usurped the longest running number one song ever from the Beatles because it's over seven minutes and 11 seconds. But they had to put that on part one and part two on the A and B side. The whole song is not on the A side. And then when Taylor Swift broke that record with her song, a couple of uh, All Too Well, a couple of months ago, that's digital. No one has to worry about grooves or even tracks anymore. So for the Beatles to record this thing, just its sonic art is something to to be lauded and, and stand in awe of. You make a great point. I mean, the Beatles knew how important this song was, and they recorded it on these tracks, but they also mixed it and mastered it and put the whole thing on one side of a 45, which will end up being the longest-running number one song, which I was shocked to learn when I started this, in the history of the Beatles in America, nine weeks. 19 weeks on the charts in total, and number one in more countries all over the world. So this thing they did in the studio, it's not just, it's the it's Trident Studios, it's the room, it's the piano, it's the master, it's Paul, it's, it's you know, uh, George Martin, it's all the people who worked on this song to make it a great, because there's a, definitely a distinction, Julian, between a great song and a great record. You know this better than anybody. You, you, could, you could screw up a really good song in the studio with the wrong producers, or you could do something we've talked about at Ad Nauseum with Destroyer. You take the same Kiss songs and you put Bob Ezrin in there, you take him out and you bring in Eddie Kramer, you take him out and you bring some other guy in, you're going to get a completely different record. So whatever magic, as Paul says, was that coalesced to make Hey Jude, made it this masterpiece. And it wasn't just his songwriting, the Beatles being great, or you know the first take. It was a lot of people to make this great. Yeah, you know, and right down to the mastering as well to get that crammed onto a forty-five single because that's Incredible. pushing the ba- that's what that'd be pushing the bounds now. But without that, and I love how you you mention the importance of breaking down that wall, which was something that the Beatles had decided in '68 that they were going to be. Apple is a great representation of that, and this song is a great representation of that plan in action, that they were going to be an art scene. They were going to be more than just a band, that great they point. were taking a social uh, perspective. We don't get Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. We, no. don't get, we don't necessarily get many of these other great forms of art that come out of Trident as well, because Bohemian. I believe was uh, cut on the, the played on the very same piano, was it not? Indeed, including uh, uh, Rick Wakeman played piano on David Bowie's brilliant uh, "Life on Mars" from Hunky Dory on that piano. Uh, Elton John recorded a couple of tracks, I think Levon on that piano. Uh, there's all the piano played on uh, Lou Reed's "Transformer," which Bowie produced in Trident, is played on the piano. It's great. I mean, it, you, that makes sense, right? It's, the, it's you can't move the piano right now. That's the piano they had. And um, it's similar to uh, Joni Mitchell. I always love this story. And my friend Rob uh, uh, Sheffield is, is writing a book about tapestry. Um, Carol King's Tapestry and Joni Mitchell's Blue, I would argue they're both of theirs finest records, were recorded in the same studio in L.A. Might have been Sunset Sound or one of those places. And they both were playing the same piano on the same days. They were moving in <laughs> and out of the, and that's so cool, you know? And they both come out and they, you know, it's, I love the, as you know, because I that was most of my shout it out loud book was about studios and how records were made. It's it's a lost art. I mean, obviously people are going in and recording in studios today, but they're not worried about tapes or tracks. 
They're not worried about sound. They could do, you could do anything now with sound. Back then, they were winging it. And certainly that's one of the great things about the Beatles. They were always winging it, trying things, and changing the landscape of, of music. And they do it with Hey Jude, too. Yeah. They were fearless, and that's what the White Album represents, which this song does not make the album. It's a non-album uh, uh, non single, as was its predecessor, Lady Madonna, which are two strikingly contrasting songs to what had come before in the year of psychedelia uh, and, and the grand expression of Magical Mystery Tour, uh, the, which is a failure in expression in some ways, and Sgt. Pepper's, which was a, a massive success. Um, I want to touch on Jonathan Gold here and the childlike component that comes into the Nanas. Um, because in some ways, I see the Nanas as a rejection, a complete flip side of the yeah, yeah, yeahs, of the early, innocent, childlike Beatles, and also as a retort to the cruelty of a child's nyanya. You know how a child... You touch on it in the book where mm -hmm. you mentioned that uh, and it may be Jonathan mentioning it. Yes, he um, did, yeah. That a na-na nah is almost like a child's response to yes, is nah. So right. th these three elements, and, and I've thrown in the, my two perspectives, what do you take from that? I I take quite a bit. I I, I think that's very true. Uh, let's just, let's not be <laughs> over-analytic nutjobs now for just two seconds, okay? I I, and I don't mean to, to drag you into my mania, but I think that's what we're doing here. We're deconstructing this pretty good, and I, I spent a year of the book, so I know it. But this is right on the surface. I'll just say this, and I don't think anybody can refute this. She Loves You, Yeah, 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 is a song about a young man talking to a young, young man about a woman that he has a chance to get, and he might be blowing it. Uh, she loves him, the guy's saying, and you you have to go for this. Um, it's written in the second person of this man talking to another man. Fast forward it four years to 1968. Hey Jude is a, whether you think it's Julian or John, Paul, the singer or the narrator is singing to Jude, the mythical Jude telling him you have found her now go and get her. Don't hold the pain, you know, refrain, you know, don't, don't make your world a little colder by being cold Get out there, accept love, be vulnerable. This, this is the same theme four years later. And as Rob Sheffield said, and it really, again, light bulbs went over my head when I interviewed some of these people. He said, look, how many rock songs is an, one guy talking to another guy about a woman, but not like, hey, I'm going to get that woman or I'm going to take that woman from you or all the usual tropes in pop music or blues or rock. He's saying, this is great. You have a chance to be to find love, go ahead, I'm, I'm rooting for you, buddy. I'll be your wingman. I mean, these are two songs by people before the age of 30. And he said, simply, a, a song about a guy talking to another guy is weird. But it's, it's so innovative and so thematic that it's just hard to ignore. So, Julian, I, it, it seems obvious to anyone listening that those two things connect. Now it does. But until I interviewed these people and studied this book, it just it never occurred to me. But it's there. And, I, and, I, and I'm not even sure it occurred to John or Paul. I don't think in many ways John or Paul really knew how much they really, really loved and revered each other because they're young men, right? And they really were only together for about 13 years, which is magnificent to think about. Uh, they met when, when Paul was 15. I think John was 16 or 17. And, you know, when 
they write their songs later on, sometimes like the two of us. It could be about them. I know that Paul wrote it for Linda, but there's this there's this overlapping of them expressing these things to each other and not realizing how much they meant to each other. And I forget who said it in my book, but they said, John and Paul think their relationship is so intimate, so important because they do it through music that they had to have their significant others and eventual wives be part of their art. John immediately doing the tape loops that become Revolution 9 and his first solo albums. And of course, all the performance art they did together, like Give Peace a Chance and Bagism. And for Paul, Paul and Linda are wings. I mean, I know they brought Denny Clinton and McLean, but think about that. No other rock stars are doing that, but they have to make them part of their art because they realize the most important intimate relationship they ever had was each other. Not sexual, not homosexual, not overly, you know, over, but a real true brotherly love that cannot be ever severed. And they constantly fought with each other for the 1970s while John was still alive because what is, what's Paul doing? What's John doing? Oh, John's doing that. I'm going to do that. I don't like what Paul's doing. I don't like what John's. Why are they doing that? They're obsessed with each other because they love each other like two brothers might. They're connected at the soul. And in yes. some ways, letting her go is also, you know, it's okay to leave. You can't love without letting someone into your heart. You cannot be totally in there. You have to let down your guard. And yes. sometimes that means being hurt, being injured, being damaged. But unless you totally commit into it. And I think that's a message John willfully takes out of it at the time, because as you mentioned, May 1968 is the consummation of his relationship with Yoko Ono. And then this song, it's almost a tacit approval that he could so easily read into himself everything that Paul is saying, even if Paul's singing it about to Julian to say it's okay to let him go. Um, you know, his dad, that Julian, you're going to be okay. You have to accept what's happening outside of your control. And equally, John's like, well, you can understand him. Oh, my, 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 my brotherly love here is telling me it's all right. Right. Yeah. They had to give each other. It is. They had to give each other permission for stuff. They did. You know, that's what they did with their songs. Even songs they wrote completely. They would play for each other. What do you think? And the other person would add something or not. And John, to his dying day, said that Hey Jude was the best thing Paul ever did, and I did nothing on it. Nothing. I mean, he sings a brilliant harmony, but he didn't have anything to do with its construction or his composition. So, but they were constantly looking for each other's approbation. Always. I mean, Paul tells the story very solemnly, but he does. He said the only time John ever, ever, ever um, uh, complimented me was on Here, There, and Everywhere. And it was like he had his back to him when he did it. He's like, yeah, that, that, that one's really good, Paul. Nice job. Like, can you imagine those guys writing all those songs? Now, I'm sure they looked at each other when they wrote I Want to Hold Your Hand and smiled and laughed and said that was a kick-ass song. That's going to be number one. But there was no real uh, attention paid by John to Paul how great he was. So Paul, in a way, kind of the younger brother, and he was younger, always trying to get his appro- uh, approbation from, from John, always trying to get – so it stings a little bit more when John writes How Do You Sleep. You know, and it stung John when he wrote too many people, Paul, for and put it on Ram to, to to make fun of he and Yoko going out there and doing all these causes. So there's there's this there's this constant yes, there's this constant sense that there 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 is a collaboration. You mentioned it, Soul Brothers, like a collaboration that's beyond just the music and how much it means to them. And so John listens to this song for the first time, and I love this story with Paul playing it. Never got to the bottom of it. Some people said it was on tape. 
Paul's mentioned that it was on piano. Even Paul's changed that story. But at some point, Paul plays it for John and Yoko's in the room as well. And John tells him right away, this song's about us. This is sounds about Yoko and I. Thank you. And he says to his body, he says in the Playboy interviews only weeks before he's assassinated that he recounts that story again. And um and about how he says, you know, that's is that you, as you said, you were paraphrasing Julian about how he says that's my my brother telling me it's okay. I can I can move on now. I can grow up and be a, a, a and, and and be a uh, a true adult and, and really open myself up to love. I mean, John loves Cynthia. I don't want to undercut that. The father of his his only son. They were together a long time, but he was so young. He was twenty. She was twenty one. He had to marry her because she was pregnant, and he didn't know anything about that stuff. I think he had to go through everything he went through to get to Yoko. And there was he no question. He that progressed. Was he evolved. Yeah, it happens. Sure. And yeah. it's supposed and, to happen because otherwise, what is the purpose of life without evolution? Well said. Well said. But paradoxically, I mean, it, it's it it's a strange in the sense that John didn't feel the need to put his fingerprint on this song in any way. Maybe right. exactly because of, um, you know, what you've said, I thought that the comments of Tim, uh, Tim Riley were particularly succinct in the book, you know, about relationships, what's going on at the time and that song being Paul's, uh, Paul's thing. And it just not needing it. If he immediately perceived it to be about him, why would he want to touch it? Why would it need any, right. uh, additional crafting? Right. Um, Yoko and Linda, we, we've we've mentioned both of those ladies coming into the lives and firmly establishing themselves within the relationships with jo, uh, with uh, Paul and John in May mid mid sixty eight. Um, the Get Back documentary aired um, prior to the publication of this, I believe. Yes. Does that change your perspective in any way about the relationship between both Linda and Yoko to the band? Because now a full edit of all of that footage is available. It certainly had a massive effect on me. I didn't see Yoko as the evil queen any longer uh, from how she's portrayed and get back. Uh, my answer, my quick answer to that is no, it didn't really change a lot of things only because I've always felt that the Linda Yoko thing was overblown. I think that's just pure misogyny in some ways with Yoko racism. I think, I think everybody felt like owned the Beatles and they didn't want to see their guys running around with their wives playing music because that's not what it was done in the sixties and seventies. Uh, a couple of things, Julian, number one, the Beatles had a little bit of that in them too. They were very old fashioned for guys who broke the mold in progression and whether it was comportment or hairstyle or or clothing or you know spirituality they were very old-fashioned liverpoolian guys women in the studio was a nothing no 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 in fact not only that anybody in the studio besides george martin was a no-no brian epstein says their original manager who passed away uh in 67 was in the studio i think twice i read three biographies about the beatles and i think he's mentioned being in the studio and when he comes in it's just to talk to the guys about something and then he leaves he's not hanging out there going i'm not really crazy about this baseline um, so anybody but the five of those guys in the, in that room or the engineers, or if they bring in like, you know, Billy Preston later on or other session guys, but if you're not playing an instrument and you're not in this band, you don't belong in here. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but there was a point in, in get back when Paul is explaining to everybody in the room, because the assumption is, and he made the joke, oh, you know, everyone's going to write from years from now that, uh, the Beatles broke up because Yoko sat on George's amp and but he's trying to explain to the guys, he's in love. My friend's in love. He's not coming back. We're not getting John from 1964, 65, 66, 67. That's not happening. He's, he's, 
He's in love and it's he's over the rainbow. And and in, in essence, what Paul is saying is, I'm over the rainbow. Because he has his wife sitting right next to him while he's saying it. So it's just amazing, that footage. But I, I always thought that was overblown. I thought Linda and Yoko had a had a had as much a relationship with each other as you're forced to have. If you have a best friend, you grow up with them and you're tight, you, you hope. I'm very lucky. My best friend since I was a kid, Chris, we love his wife, Cheryl, and, and she loves my, my, my wife. And all four of us get together. We go on vacations together. That is a total blessing. I have lots of friends where you just, you know, their wives are, you like them, but you're, you're not, you don't hate them, but you, there's not that connection. There's no way it's going to be that connection you had somebody you've known, in my case with Chris, since I'm like nine and he's eight or I was 11 and he's eight or whatever the hell it was. So there's that, right? And, but as far as Yoko's impact, I don't think I think what Peter Jackson did was it got all those people who only know the tertiary surfacey Beatle history, but everybody knows that Yoko's real impact was prior to this. In 1968, when they record Hey Jude, and there's no I see her in the rehearsals, but there is no record of her being in the studio when they record this single, which, by the way, was the last time all four Beatles recorded a single together, yep. which I find fascinating, too, because that's how they started with Love Me Do in 62. And. But Yoko was a, think about this, they went from zero to 100. Yoko, they go from the four of them with, with as I mentioned, with George Martin and some engineers to Yoko, to another presence that doesn't belong there, and a woman. And a woman who's John's saying now, without ever having a conversation, she's here, deal with it. Now, John was the unequivocal leader of that band from the very beginning. And so it was his band. Paul joined his band. John was the the, he wasn't the oldest because Ringo came in later, but it's John is the leader. If you watch Get Back, you see Paul trying to engage John and shit because if he doesn't, they're not getting anything done. And you can even see the band almost breaks up because John's not showing up to the sessions in Get Back. So John in 68, when they're doing the White Album, which is already contentious, Julian, he brings in Yoko and she's sitting right there and he's like, deal with it. He wants to shove it in their face. He wants to say, I'm moving on. This whole Beatle thing's nice, but this is real what's going on between me and Yoko. So that, that, tension was real. They almost came to blows. Paul said, you're messing this thing up. You're sabotaging, use that word, you're sabotaging these sessions during the White Album sessions, which is all prior to recording Hey Jude. And that's when John came up with, well, I'm tired of being your backup band for your granny music shit. This is really going on in real time, and Yoko's in the middle of it. And she's wrongly blamed, but John did use it as a cudgel to separate himself or evolve from the four lovable lads from Liverpool. That part of the story is real. But by the time we get to 69, I think they're, they're, it's a year now, right? It's a year of this, or months for sure, and they've accepted Yoko. And as well they should, because Paul said, he loves her. Get over it. Yeah, and she, you know, for better or worse, and taste is, again, very subjective, she was an artist. She had a point of view. And yes, and she, she was had, an she artist definitely before had a, she had a point of view yes. that resonated with John, but I think that she is also a catalyst for John to realize that just like what the Beatles wanted to accomplish with Apple, that John could also be the same as Apple. He didn't have to be just the Beatles. He could be more than that. And that's what I see in the White Album. The White Album is disjointed. It was my least favorite album by that band for the longest time until I really started giving it much more time. And how disjointed it becomes really does uh, illustrate the tensions that are born out of everything that comes out of 
the probably the year prior to May 1968. This is the the, the final echo of the original Beatles in some yes. ways. After yes. which it is borrow time that they are on. And if you think that they managed to string together the White Album and get it done, Ringo leaves during the sessions, yes. uh, have fed up with it. They lose Joff um, from yep. the. Uh, from, and George Martin, they all and just George, yeah, they can't you know, take it anymore. You know, they're they're falling apart in dysfunction, and as you say, the brothers nearly come to fisticuffs. So it it really is illustrative of that that such a soft lullaby is the kind of angels hearkening the demise of the band. Well said. Wow, I should have put that in my book. I do think, though, Julian, you're right, and I and that was one of my themes too. This is the last time, and I'll argue this. People can argue other things. Obviously, they they made two great albums. I love Let It Be. Hey, uh, by the way, uh, the White Album is my favorite. We can have a great debate on that. My favorite Beatle album, and that took me a long time to get there. But I agree. But um, it it is important to note that Hey Jude is the last time because they were they're doing these White Album sessions in which. They're doing 60, 70 takes of ooblah-dee, ooblah-da. They're driving everybody, each other crazy. And they say, let's just go in and do one song and a great one. And they all agreed it was great. And it's it's like a breath of fresh air for them. They go to a new studio. They get new people around them. They, 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 they do. He, Paul goes up in late June to see Cynthia, writes a thing on the way back, singing the song, hey, Jules, goes to his magic piano, the painted one, in his Cavendish Avenue apartment, house he writes it within a week he's playing it for john within a couple of weeks he's playing it for like uh you know the guys in bad finger and these other guys and a pub and then in, on june 30th 29th and 30th they rehearse it they record it the first day of august or something like that by the second or third day of august it's recorded like within a couple of weeks it's done and that's the way the beatles used to do things they didn't do things for months on end yelling at each other like the white album so this was a breath of fresh air i do think I agree. You could draw a line from the Hey Jude session and the release of Hey Jude. This is before Alan Klein and all the lawsuits and all the stuff before George starts to really say, I want to do my own stuff. And Ringo walks out and then George walks out. This is it. I think this is the last time the Beatles, because a lot of people said, can you compare Let It Be to Hey Jude? I think it only compares that this, it's, a, it's a ballad by Paul McCartney where he's singing piano, where he's playing piano. That's it. The rest of this the, the the story is completely different. When Hey Jude hits the airwaves, the Beatles are still a powerful, powerful unit. By the time hey, Let It Be hits the, the the airwaves, they're finished. So yeah, it is their last, I call it the last sunshine before the clouds come in or that final yawp that the Beatles had built and built and from 62, 63, 64. If you're listening and you're not watching this, my hand's going up, 66, 67. By the time they get to 68, they kind of plateau. And then even though they do some great work, I don't think they're still on that ascent anymore, no. personally or professionally no, or creatively. It, yeah, I, I, I hate to use the phrase flatline because when you're, I, I don't think they're moving down. No, but no, they're not you still get up, every road. But right. you know, they they barely have a pulse, and I think the get back sessions are illustrative of that. They go back to trying to be four musicians creating together again, but that spark is gone. That spark is not extinguished, but as a unit, it is certainly no longer there. When you look at Paul creating Get Back, and you've got the film of the genesis of it, the magic is still there. Him trying to engage John, him trying to engage George. I think George is an interesting X factor in the, um, the White Album. 
because I think just like the others also did get a lot out of um, the Maharishi, I think George thought about it longer. Oh, yeah, that was his thing. And it was yeah. and it was already it was his thing prior, yes. uh, you know, 65. So he was in on that looking for his answer on his own independent because he didn't have that brotherly relationship with the other two being so much younger. He he probably always felt like the younger brother. Here are yes. my two big brothers. I can never have that relationship. I'm going to investigate my essence, my being, my worldview on my own. And Ringo. Ringo is a free spirit. R- Ringo is a madman in some ways. You know, he's like, ah, oh, whatever. I'll drum what you want. Just tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it. You know, and if you think he gets to the point of frustration that he wants to, you know, just, uh, you know, chuck it all in during the White House, that says an awful, that says a, a spectacular amount. All the <laughs> people who were damaged in the making of that after this beautiful song, uh, this soothing song. I want to close out on a, a couple of things. I think, the importance of Hey Jude is the universality of the song, that you can sing it with any group of people, basically. And when you get to the Nana section, it's just a madhouse because it's impossible not to be sucked in emotionally, especially in a, a, a crowd, because it only takes three people to go from uh, an audience to a mob in a moment. And I think the Nana's is the good side of what can happen to, when you put a group of people together. Mm-hmm. The panoptic yeah. view of the human condition is represented in this song so much. Um, I want you just to close on the enigmatic part of Hey Jude. And I don't think we ever have an answer to this. The movement you need <laughs> is on your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a good place to end, I guess. Uh, we talk about it three times, myself. And I should mention in the book, Julian, that I, I my original pitch to the publisher was, I want to interview learned people about one song, and I want to get to the bottom of it. So I had a, a professor of sociology, musicology, psychology, philosophy, uh, sociology. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, uh, I, I interviewed uh, writers, Beatle biographers, Beatle experts, scholars, and uh, and songwriters, singer songwriters of all different generations and gender. Wanted to get to the bottom of this. So three different times in the book we talk about the movement you need is on my shoulder, is on your shoulder. And uh, first thing is it was Paul's way of just putting a, a, a placeholder in, like singing scrambled eggs instead yep. of yesterday. Uh, and then, of course, John wouldn't let him take it out, which I love that story. And he says it's the best line in it because that's John. John loves to play with words. He loves that Lewis Carroll thing, which wasn't really Paul's thing, but he left it in there. And to this day, he told Bob Costas, I put that interview or that quote in the book. Uh, and this is in the early 90s. He said, whenever I sing that song, I think of John. That's the only line that I ever think of anything else but what I'm doing on stage because you have to pay attention to what the hell you're doing when you're performing. But I leave myself for a second and think of John, which – when I saw him play a couple of weeks ago, Paul, and, and, he, and, I, and, he, and he sang that line, it, I got the chills because I'm thinking that I know exactly what Paul You think that he's probably right having now. the chills at the same moment. Yes. I'm thinking the same thing Paul's thinking right now for the, for the only time in my whole life. And so there's that. Then we get into what you said before 1968, and I dedicate a whole chapter to the assassinations of uh, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the deaths in Vietnam, the bloodiest year for Americans in 68. The, the riots in the streets against it, the protests, the protests for women's rights and gay rights, civil rights, uh, the violent nature of what uh, comes out of the civil rights and leftist movements, uh, what's going on in Paris, 
with the uh, with the workers' movement, the invasion of Czechoslovakia by Russia. I mean, '68 is just the whole world's on it's fire. It's basically the White Album living out in yes. the, the recording of the White Album in yes. Technicolor. And that's very important, Julian. I'm so glad you brought that up. I I, I try to tell all my 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 uh, the audiences of the interviews or the podcasts I've been on is that you you look at the the, the youth movement. Don't trust anybody over 30 that builds in the 60s out of the late 50s and that the Beatles become sort of this beacon for. And they start to break off in late 67, 68. While the rest of the world is celebrating the summer of love, there are real serious comeuppance on racism and misogyny and war and violence going on in the streets of all over the world. And so and that comes to real fruition in 68. So there is a they are breaking into these fractions as the Beatles are. With their own interests and their yep. own ideas creatively. And, and they're commentating on it. Sexy Sadie, Helter Skelter. Yes. I mean, those are the two standouts on that album that are commenting on social conditions at the time. Right. Yeah. Even back in the USSR, which sends it up. So, yeah. So that you got that. So the movement you need, is it a movement? And then finally, it comes down to what people think on a personal level. He's talking to the to Julian or he's talking to the mythical Jude. He's talking to this friend, telling him about how to embrace life, let yourself be vulnerable for pain and love. And I'll give the last word to Adam. I think he gave the closest, my friend Adam George. He said, on a very literal level, the movement you need is on your shoulder. That's your head. Your head is on your shoulder and moves back and forth or on your shoulders. And you have to use your mind and think, as John says in the B-side in Revolution, think for a minute, use your mind. You, that's great, you wanna burn the world down, but who are you, what are you gonna replace it with? What's your plan? Which I love. Everybody, you know, jokes in the book. He's he really never gets. I, I'm in. I'm out. I don't know if I if you if you want violence. I'm not into interested in this. But in a way, John's saying, think about it for a minute. So the movement you need. And at the end, he says it's all right. It's going to be all right. The way Paul is saying, hey, it's going to be all right. So I love that the movement you need is on your shoulder. It's still being bounced around. So Julian, I can't let you go. What do you think it is? I think it's straightforward. In a difficult way. The movement you need is on your shoulder. It's on you. Only you can decide to be happy. Only you can decide to let her go. Only you can decide to let her into your heart. And that in the end, it's down to you to make it all right. So... I'm very impressed by the cast of characters that you do have supporting the many elements of the discussion in the book. A very learned group from all disciplines and expertise. I thought it was a very well-selected group who represent the thoughts that you're trying to get across extremely well. I also find it to be very readable. It is an incredibly deep book when you take a step back and look at it. But when you open it up and you read the pages... It draws you in and it supports the discussion for the point that you're trying to make. And I think when we arrive at the last page of your book, that it's really de- it's on our shoulders to make of this book what we will. Because, again, all our perspectives and our subjective and objective points of view come into play when we weigh this song. Um, last word is Julian. Isn't he brilliant? what he's done recently. Yeah. I love that. that A a fine lad that has emerged from any child who suffers from a loss of a parent, whether through death or divorce and whatnot, and comes out well adjusted. And also he's got his father's empathy 
without his father's caustic wit. Yeah, uh, Julian lost his father twice. And just like John said, I lost my mother twice when she gave me up to my Aunt Mimi and then she died. The parallels are incredible on that level. Uh, his new album is going to be called Jude. And the, the, the font used is Paul McCartney's handwriting in, uh, I think, about 15 years ago, there was an auction for the studio notes and a anonymous person bid and won it. And it was Julian Lennon. And Julian says that, you know, and, and the second part of what I was about to say, too, is that he lost his dad in a sense where a couple of people in the book say he was the forgotten Lennon child. After Sean was born, it was all about Sean, who John stayed home for five years. How, how must that have hurt Julian to see his father who he never saw around and told Paul McCartney, I, I don't know how you can play with my son. I, I can't do it because John didn't have those tools. He tried to learn those tools. And as we said earlier in this podcast, he, he evolved. So by the time he was at 35, 36 he could be home with his son and be a a, a, a house a, a dad. And but then Julian has to become a pop star in a way to get attention. After his father dies, he loses him a second time to an assassin's bullet. And then he tells many interviewers over the years, I don't have many pictures of me and my dad being intimate or playing, but I have dozens of Uncle Paul and I. And Uncle Paul, and he calls him Uncle Paul, never fails to send me a Christmas card or a birthday card. And that's why I kept saying to myself when I was writing the book, this is this is Mary McCartney, Paul's mom, giving him that empathy. Don't forget about Julian. Don't forget about Cynthia. You know, be there. And he loved it, just like he loved Heather, the first child of the first or the child of the first marriage of, of Linda. He he loved kids, Paul. And and he and he saw the he saw the look in their eyes, what he went through. And he tries to give him a little comfort because songs saved Paul from 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 real grief. And distress as a kid. So, yeah, Julian reflects all that. And I'm trying to get him the book. He's very reticent to always talk about that stuff. Uh, I'm hoping that he will read it just like I hope one day Paul will. I know Stella uh, just recently uh, posted some stuff at uh, Glassbury where he's playing. Um, Paul's playing Hey Jude and the whole seems like a billion people are singing it. And uh, somebody who works with me was like, oh, you got to get a book to Stella. So we're, we're reaching out to her. But, yeah. It means a lot to me that, that Julian is is stepping out and having one last statement about that. Uh, my heart goes out to him. I, I always loved him, and his story always breaks my heart. It does. Yeah, without a doubt. When he did uh, a cover of Imagine recently in support of Ukraine, I was bawling. I was absolutely bawling um, watching that. I, I was so excited when he released his first album in 1984. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I've adored Julian over the years. That's a damn good record, too. It really it is. is. It, if if you're not familiar with Julian's first record, you do need to check it out. Uh, his voice, the songs, it's not his father, but his father is on his shoulder there. Um, yeah. James, where can people find Take a Sad Song? Anywhere. Uh, it's on Amazon Everywhere. and Barnes & Everywhere and anywhere. Yeah, uh, I, I always say support local and independent bookstores if they don't have a copy because they don't have a lot of self space they could always order it and get it for you and help them out a little bit i'm still doing uh book stuff uh, i'm going to be at beetle fest in chicago in august i believe it's like the 14th and 15th of august 
uh, check it out. Uh, I, I'm supposed to. It's still up in the air. I was originally uh, slated to speak at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on October 8th. I might have a few people there. Tim Riley might might join me. Uh, and I'm still doing bookstores. But yeah, it can be found anywhere. If you want a signed copy of it from me, and I'll sign it to you, your dad, your uncle, whoever's a Beatle fan, your mom, your sister, um, go to jamescampion.com. I mail everything within the continental USA free. Uh, we do add shipping if you're outside of it and you want to pay for the shipping. That's fine. But I will sign a copy and mail it to you free in that case. And um, and uh, thanks for asking. I really appreciate that. And I did want to ask you, Julian, before you let me go. Um, I love talking about music with you. And this has been a real thrill because usually we're talking Kiss. And you always have a cerebral, even-handed, but emotional connection to music. And I wonder... If you were to write a, a book about one song, if you were to choose a song in your life, I'm putting you on the spot, if there's something, or maybe an album, what would you choose? What's the thing that gets you? And it doesn't have to be Beatles. What's the thing that sometimes gets you and brings you back and has that emotional currency for you? That is an incredibly difficult um, question to ask me and put me on the spot. How dare you? Um, I don't know if I have any single song that resonates in my life to that level where I would want to focus solely on this, especially looking at the way you've approached focusing on a single song here or how um, another a brilliant book that I strongly recommend, uh, Walk This Way, focuses on that single song in terms of its importance um, on the rap perspective and Aerosmith Rebirth, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, uh, I don't know that one. I got to look that up because I, I read every book written by one song and I always thought there was only nine, but I never count that one. So that I got to look into that one. Thank you. No, that that I can strongly recommend. Absolutely fascinating. My bad. And uh, it, it doesn't quite go into um, what you've done here, but for the context of the genre that it's speaking about, it speaks extraordinarily well to that subject matter. Okay, so stro it, yeah. strongly recommended and very readable. But albums for me uh, are like photographs and they are too much like photographs for that moment in time to me that Great the analogy. albums the albums that would be my desert island discs or my coffin fillers are are really just too intimate in some ways that they bring back moments of pain that are important moments of joy that are important moments of discovery or self-discovery or evolution so I wouldn't really want to focus in on any one. I say that now, and you've probably just planted a bloody seed, which has set me on the path to perdition. That Well, all you got to do now is, like, after this episode airs, just tweet, or however you want to use it on social media. I would love for you to share that with us, because I think somebody like yourself, you maybe haven't thought about it that way. And I didn't either. I got to tell you, this book, you know, the whole song just kind of came upon me. And then it was the last song I heard before my father passed. I mean, literally minutes before my father died and it faded. It, it's incredible. And then to hear all these other people talk about how songs have this emotional currency for us and pay us off so many times and take us back. I think nothing else for me, not smell, not taste, not photographs, not films, music takes me back. You mentioned it like photographs take me back to a point. I think the only thing that comes close is sporting events, like moments in a sporting event. I can tell you exactly where I was sitting when something happened, uh, which I can't do with almost anything else in life, except maybe my wedding, you know. And so, um, but with music, it takes me to those places. It reminds me of my first kiss, my first car ride, my first skin knee, 
moving and being lonely and having a radio to keep me company, uh, you know, learning to play a song on the guitar and listening to it. I mean, there's so many great ways that music and songs hit us. Uh, and yeah, knowing you the way I do uh, and how passionately you've written and researched music, I know they're in there. So I'm dying to know where, where Julian Gill comes down on the side of this. But James Campion, that is the true emotional currency of music. Thank you for joining us and best of luck with the book. As always, Julian. Thanks, buddy. Peace, everybody. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. Facebook.